The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. So this morning we are bringing to conclusion this introductory retreat of this weekend and continuing the study of the practice slogans of Atisha. Atisha was a 10th century Indian Buddhist master who taught these 59 uh, practice phrases um, in the Tibetan tradition known as Lojong. And so we've been studying these during this fall intensive. And so today I wanted to take up whatever you meet unexpectedly, join with meditation. These phrases are very short and succinct pointers, teachings that are encourage us to um, contemplate, reflect on the meaning of that phrase and incorporate it into our practice. So they're like pointers and reminders of, of how and to what particularly we might bring our attention to to help strengthen our practice and um, let it unfold nicely. Judy Leaf, in her commentary on this, said, when our lives are going relatively smoothly and predictably, it's easier to maintain our mindfulness. But when things are happening fast, it's hard to remember to join what we encounter with meditation. It's also easier to think of others if we ourselves are not currently in the midst of some crisis or caught up in some amazing opportunity. But it seems that no matter how hard we try to stay on an even keel, we keep being blindsided by unexpected events. So based in this slogan, taking an attitude of compassion and awareness does not need to be some formal or long drawn out process. It can be done in an instant. Pema Chodron said, the unexpected will stop your mind. Rest in that space, and then do sending and receiving. And this is a, a practice, a very ancient practice of, of in our mind, in our meditation, of receiving some aspect of the suffering of someone, and then sending out with our exhalation something that will help them, heal them. So whenever you meet something unexpected, join with your meditation. And so there's a strong emphasis in Buddhist practice, particularly in the Zen tradition, that our meditation, zazen, itself makes it quite clear. Zazen means to sit zen, sitting zen. So in that word itself, it's telling us that there must be other forms of zen or meditation. In other words, in other postures, in other moments. Otherwise, why point to sitting itself? And the character, Mazuma Roshi, uh, years ago, um, talked about the character, the Chinese characters of Zazen. The first, Za, is composed of two characters. And one means ground or earth, and it looks kind of like a balance, like a balance scale. And then the other character means person. And there are actually two of those characters in this one compound character on either side of the balance. And so he says it takes two people to find that balance. We can't do it alone. 
We can also think of that other person as being the world, the earth, the phenomena, anything in one moment that appears before us. In order to find our ground, or to find ground, we have to be in balance with that person or that phenomena. In order to be in balance with that phenomena or that person, we have to be touching the ground. And then the second character, Zen, is also compound and contains two characters, which together basically mean to show or reveal the one. And so he says the fundamental implication is to show the oneness, to reveal ourselves as unity of everything. Through Zazen, we are not gaining anything, but we are revealing our natural state, which is the true balance. And so to in meeting something unexpected, to join with meditation, to keep that in mind, sort of that richness of what those characters are, 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 are sort of bringing to our attention. And of course, it's very easy to lose our balance, right? We see this in Zazen. I remember my very beginning of Zazen when I was sitting years ago before I was here, and I would be sitting in front of a wall, and if there was a little fleck of dust or a imperfection in the paint or whatever, that my mind would latch onto it, right? And I'd get distracted. There was nothing going on. And so then I would try and make whatever the surface was in front of me perfect, you know? So it was like, make that perfect rather than like deal with my mind. But I was seeing how easy, how little it took to, in in other words, how little of an unexpected (laughs) something it took for me to to lose my meditation, to not be joined. And then when I came here, I remember the first Sunday I came here, and we're sitting, and Dr. Roshi's in the Doksan room, and the bell is ringing, and people are moving, and the monitors, and I'm like, what? What's with all the noise? Right? How am I supposed to sit with all of this going on? <laughs> and I realized, as I was going home that day, I realized that I had tried to create this very sort of precious container in which to sit, right, where there were no disturbances so that my mind would not be so easily disturbed. And I realized, oh, maybe this is actually helping me to work with my mind and not rely so much on my outer circumstances. So it's stretching. It felt like I was being stretched. So we see this here, even sitting in this hall on this seat, surrounded by practitioners. And how much more so when we're on the move, when something unexpected appears. And so when we forget our meditation, what usually happens is we forget a whole bunch of stuff. We forget our intention, our aspirations, what we have learned about practice, our mindfulness. And what happens when we forget is we tend to revert back to what we what we most easily remember, which is our habitual habits, because we've been doing those a lot longer than we've been doing Dharma practice. So those have much deeper roots. We've been relying on those for much longer. So when we forget, and here to think of joining with meditation, let that include everything in terms of the Eightfold Path, we we find ourselves going back, right? Reverting back to old tendencies. And that's a very common sort of universal experience. So don't be surprised and don't think something's wrong. It's just showing us what, what forces, what 
what tendencies are still very strong within us. And it, we can see it as an encouragement, rather, to strengthen, you know, to keep working on developing that stability. In the 8th century, there was a very famous Cham master, Master Matsu, who um, had a, a very well-known, he had many disciples, but he had a very well-known disciple, Bai Zhang. And once Bai Zhang asked him, what is the essential truth of the Dharma? of Zen. Matsu said, it's just the place where you let go of your body and your life. It's the place where you let go of your body and your life. This body and life is the repository of all of everything. Our attachments, our histories, our concepts, beliefs, emotions, thoughts, strategies, wounds, that's what we experience when we practice. That's what shows up on the cushion when we take this seat. The, that's many of the unexpecteds that arise. Right? That even sitting on that seat in this hall, surrounded by practitioners, during a period of zazen where there is nothing else to do, we forget our meditation. Right? So obviously, there's a much greater potential for that to happen off the cushion outside of all of this, right? But that's just the deal, right? That just means, okay, that's the reality of this conditioned mind, so that's what we're practicing, to shift. There was a koan where Bai Zhang and his teacher, Matsu, were walking one day. And Matsu said, what is that? Some ducks flew by, like right now, beginning their migration south. And Matsu pointed up and said, what is that? And Bai Zhang had said, it's wild ducks, Master. And Matsu says, well, where have they gone? And Bai Zhang said, they've flown away. And Matsu grabbed him and grabbed his nose and twisted it. And Bai Zhang cried out in pain. And Matsu says, when have they ever flown away? So there was an unexpected moment. (laughs) In the commentary, it says, if you want to be teachers of Buddhas and ancestors, study Bai Zhang. If you want to be unable to even save yourself, then study Matsu. Observe how these ancients, these old masters, were never absent from here 24 hours a day. Observe how they were never absent from here. So what is here? We could easily think of that as, well, their mindfulness, right? Or their vows, their precepts, practice. For Bai Zhang, it might be never absent of the recognition that he is with his teacher. But here is much larger than that. It's a unity of practice, of sacred and mundane, of heaven and hell, of delusion and enlightenment. It's all-inclusive. It's undivided. There's nothing absent. Join with meditation doesn't mean that in every moment have no thought. We can think that meditation means as we practice letting go of our grasping at thoughts. And that's really important to understand. We're letting go of the grasping. When we say let go of thoughts, 
it suggests that there's something about the thoughts that's a problem. The thoughts themselves are not the problem. Sometimes we have thoughts that are not so great. That's true. But the nature of thoughts, whatever they, their subject matter, their composition, whatever the thought is, they all have the same nature. They're like clouds passing. One moment they weren't there, the next moment they're there, and the next moment they're not there. There's nothing permanent in them. They have no power of their own. We react to them differently, but that's, in a sense, on us. That's our karma and our relationship with that particular thought. It's meaning, what it means to us, what it means about us. The thought itself is not the problem, so we should really understand what we're doing is practicing letting go of the grasping at the thought. Then the thought itself is as it always was, free to come and go. And so to join with meditation doesn't mean to have more thoughts. Rather, we can think of it as when thinking, don't let your thoughts delude you. Or rather, don't delude our thoughts. Then we are not deluded. Don't infuse them with attachments and false beliefs, with a sense that they do exist on their own, that they do have their own power, that they are absolute truths. That's how we delude our thoughts, and then become, in a sense, under the influence. So Matsu says, what is that? Pointing at the wild ducks. And in the commentary it says, how could the great master Matsu not have known they were wild ducks? Why did he ask this question? Of course he knew they were wild ducks. Observe how these ancients are never absent from here. When I was with my teacher over those many years, whether I was in the Doksan room, whether we were in a board meeting, whether I was over at his house having supper, whether I was his attendant on a trip, I never forgot that he was my teacher. I was never not aware that I was a student and studying with my teacher. That was never absent, no matter how casual no matter how silly he might have been in certain moments, no matter what was going on, I was always aware of that. Because that's what I wanted of that relationship. Matsu was aware. What did he want? Why did he ask that question? Was it for him? Was it just idle chatter? He felt uncomfortable, didn't know what to do? walking in silence, so he just asked a stupid question. How was he serving Bai Zhang? As one of the Atisha slogans says, be aware, know what the fundamental point of Buddhism is, which is to liberate ourselves from the grasping, from the false view, from the attachment of a self in ourselves and everything. So if that's the fundamental, then the teacher's purpose in teaching is to bring the student to that fundamental. And in any way that they can bring them closer, bring it into view, generate faith, generate doubt, startle them, create an unexpected moment which is part of the, it's not unique to Zen, but 
there was a period of time where there was a lot of development and exploration of how settled the mind becomes. One of the other slogans is, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like, you know, don't just stay in the predictable. Don't get stuck in the predictable. And so because, you know, we're creatures of habit, like every creature, and so we get settled in our ways. And so when we meet something unexpected, that's a moment for things to be shaken loose. And so he says, where did they go? And Bai Zheng said, they flew away. Well, where did they go? Where have they gone? And so he twists his nose, crying out in pain. And the footnote to that says, it's right here. Can it even be called wild ducks? Are you conscious of pain? What is he asking? Are you conscious of pain? To know pain, we have to be separate from it. There has to be the pain that we know, that we are conscious of. And when being conscious of it, we give it a name. All of our history and associations and experiences flood into it. Our desires to be free of it, to not want it. Our anger at the cause of that pain. All of that happens in a flash. In one sudden moment, all the worlds, past, present, come flooding in. And what's actually happening is one moment of sensation. There is a cause. But what the experience, what, what Matsu is trying to bring to Bai Zhang, bring him to, is that one moment. And let that moment be the whole universe. Pema says the unexpected can stop your mind. It can, and it often does in the moment, right? You're walking down the street and a car backfires. Boom! Something unexpected happens, and the mind in that moment can become completely clear. But then what happens? In an instant, discriminating consciousness. What was that? We might react with anger. What the hell? We might be fearful. And then we identify, oh, it was just a car backfiring. And the body may be amped up, all in an instant. And so the mind, that's when we chant in the Heart Sutra, Avalokiteshvara doing deep prajnaparamita clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness. The skandhas in Buddhism describe how we become a person, how we experience our personhood. How does a moment of one sensation, one sense organ coming into contact with something, a sound, become a conscious experience in which the self exists in the world in a state of separation and distance? How does that happen? And so when Avalokiteshvara realized each of those aspects of the constituent parts, skandhas actually means aggregates, that constitute together in an action, a series of actions, the sense of self, when Avalokiteshvara realizes they're empty, it means in, in, at every single step, there is no self. Not in the form, not in the sensation, not in the perception, not in the discriminatory consciousness. 
not in the awareness that is ultimately cognition. That if we look closely, there's no place, no time where we can actually locate someone. It's just a coming together of this rather miraculous consciousness that brings forth an awareness of something. But it doesn't just bring the awareness of something, it brings the awareness of someone. And so when Matsu is squeezing Bai Zhang's and then calls out, where have they ever flown away? When have they ever flown away? In the poem, the verse of this koan, it says, Pai Zhang wanted to fly away, but Matsu held him fast. There is denying pain when it arises. There is suppressing pain. There is numbing ourselves to pain. There is distracting ourselves from pain. And pain you can replace with any experience. There is naming and judging it. There is being an expert on pain. There's writing books and songs about pain. (laughs) There's lots we can do around pain, with pain, right? But when the unexpected happens, join it with your meditation. Pema says, when the mind stops, there's a doorway. And so there is a practice of pain. There's a practice of a moment. There is a moment to practice. And then there is going beyond that. Because in that moment of practice, I am practicing, which is good, right? You are practicing. You remember. You reflect. You examine. You return from wherever you have wandered, right? That unexpected moment allows, can bring forth all of that. But as that gets more deeper, there's a point at which there is no one. There is not, oh, I need to practice this. I need to remember because I've forgotten. I am going to practice this. What was my vow? Hong Zhir said, a person practicing the way subtly goes beyond words and thoughts, instantly authentic. One is now on the affirmed path and does not attach to reasoning. Moreover, you must remember to return to the homeward path. A person practicing the way subtly goes beyond words and thoughts. That's why we sit in this hall, letting go of grasping at words and thoughts. Not because they themselves are wrong or bad. They are enormously useful. I'm using some right now, right? Buddhism has lots of words, lots of concepts, lots of things to reflect on. But there is more. That's the mind we're trained in. That's the mind we come into practice um, just trusting. And that's the mind that we keep reverting to. In a sense, that's our default. Sometimes people will say, you know, I'm not, I'm, not an, I'm not an intellectual person. And I say, what that means in Buddhism, I said, yes, you are. <laughs> what that means in Buddhism is not that you have lots of degrees. It means that we all experience the world through our intellect. 
through our knowledge, through our concepts, through our ideas, through our names and language. It doesn't have anything to do with being smart or highly educated. It means how processing or experiencing the world through concepts. Instantly authentic, Hongzhur says. We are now on the affirmed path. The affirmed path is affirmed by the Buddha in his original teaching. This is the path. But then since the time of the Buddha, it has been reaffirmed in every generation. Every time somebody sits down and begins to experience the authentic nature of themselves, the authentic nature of zazen, of practice, they're reaffirming what the Buddha realized. We call that practice and verification. That's why it's ultimately not in what the Buddha taught. It's not what in these teachers taught. It's not in anything. It has to be reaffirmed in every generation. That's what keeps it alive. When that stops happening, it's not alive. The full story of this is that Bai Zhang and and Matsu had this little encounter. And later, as they were back at the monastery, Bai Zhang was back in his room. And uh, another monk was there and heard Bai Zhang crying loudly. And he went in to check on him and he said, are you homesick? And Bai Zhang said, no. And the other monk said, did someone curse at you? And Bai Zhang said, no. And the student says, well, then why are you crying? And he says, well, Master Ma twisted my nose so hard that the pain was unbearable. And the student says, well, what did you do that offended him? And Bai Zheng said, you go ask him. (laughs) (laughs) So the monk goes to Matsu and says, what did the attendant Bai Zheng do to offend you? He's in his room crying. Please tell me. And Matsu says, he knows. You go ask him. (laughs) And so he goes back to Bai Zheng and says, the master said that you already know, so I should come here and check with you. And thereupon Bai Zheng burst out into laughter. And the monk says, a moment ago you were crying. Why are you laughing now? And Bai Zhang said, I was crying before. Now I'm laughing. Another translation of that says, my crying a moment ago is the same as my laughing now. And it's very interesting. I was reflecting on that because, you know, those are just two different ways of translating. But I think actually they, they're sort of presenting something, two different aspects. I was crying before, and now I'm laughing. In one moment, there are 10,000 years. My crying a moment ago is the same as my laughing now. All dharmas have one flavor, one taste. And so the attendant was bewildered, the monk was bewildered by Bai Zhang's behavior. Couldn't understand it. And the next day when Matsu went into the the Dharma Hall to teach, everybody had assembled. And Bai Zhang went in and rolled up his teacher's sitting mat, where he was going to be sitting, rolled it up, put it under his arm, and Matsu got down and walked back to the abbot's room. And Bai Zhang followed him. And Matsu says, just now, I hadn't said a word yet. Why did you roll up the sitting mat? And Bai Zhang said, yesterday, the master painfully twisted my nose. And his teacher said, is there anything special 
about yesterday that you've noticed? And Bai Zhang said, today, my nose doesn't hurt anymore. And Matsu said, then you really did understand. And Bai Zhang bowed and left. These two adepts are speaking from the same place. They're communicating. Dogen speaks of intimate language. Dada Roshi used to liken this to, you know, when somebody who is a highly skilled carpenter sees somebody else pick up a hammer or a tool that they can look and see and get a, a clear sense of the skill, the experience of that carpenter between musicians, painters, anyone who has skill with something, who has really gone deeply into something, can observe someone else because it's a shared language, right? Without speaking, there's something that's known. When we do seshin, we spend a whole week in silence, sitting together, everybody on their cushion, having their own week and universe of experience that no one else knows. And yet by the end of the week, right? We're not telling our stories, we're not reporting, everyone is in silence. But by the end of the week, what's most typical is that there's a sense of a shared common experience. That even though I don't know the particulars of your experience, that there is something about your experience I do know. It's an intimate kind of knowing. Commentary says, Matsu just wanted to help Bai Zhang understand this great matter. Thus it is said, when you do understand, now you can make use of it wherever you are. If you don't yet understand, then the conventional truth prevails. If Matsu hadn't twisted Bai Zhang's nose at that time, the conventional truth would have prevailed. It's also necessary when encountering circumstances and meeting conditions to turn them around and return them to oneself. To have no gaps at any time is called the ground of nature bright and clear. When you meet something unexpected, join it with your meditation. He's saying when we understand, then we can take that everywhere. That's the power of direct experience. Right? If we have knowledge, if we've learned something, we forget that, right? Or it changes, it, it evolves, it morphs. It's, it's, not, it's, it's something that we're holding in our mind. But experience is something that changes us from the inside. And then we take that wherever we go. Well, if that's true, then why, when we have realization, do we still fall into, is it generally, if not universally, experienced by practitioners that there's still moments where they revert back to their delusion, to their deluded views, to their attachments, because those habits are still strong. The student has seen something, has gained some understanding of the nature of reality, and those habits still have strength. And at certain moments, they become prominent. They become strong, we revert to them, and so, as Hongzhu says, we have to keep returning homeward. And yet, that experience 
we take everywhere, which means it's always available. It's always present. And even before we have insight, your mind, your Buddha nature, your potential for mindfulness, whatever your aspirations and vows are, those are also there. And then he says, if, if he hadn't held Bai Zhang, realize this, the conventional truth would have prevailed. That's what he's talking about. And he says, so when we encounter circumstances and meet conditions, something unexpected, turn them around and return them to oneself. So what is he saying? So what normally happens when we experience something that startles us or upsets us or is difficult? We turn outward, right? What is happening out there? Why are you doing this? What's going on? It goes out. And what the teachings are saying is turn it around. Turn the light around. Drive all blames into one. Right? Take responsibility for my experience in this moment. It's my perception. It's the skandhas within this body and mind that I call myself. It's my lifetime of history and experiences and karma that has bringing forth this moment's perception. That's my business. And so to turn the light around and join that, not just with my meditation, but with everything, with the path. Otherwise, he says, we'll just be haunting the forests and fields. Right? And it makes sense why it's so easy to entice us people to not turn it around, but to go out. Because we can always find somebody to blame. We can always find something that's wrong. And there is blame to be acknowledged. There are things that need to be addressed Rampantly. It's not denying that. Buddhism doesn't deny that. But that the seat of change, which is the, of, of, of wisdom and compassion, is the same seat of suffering. And if we continually turn outward and don't turn inward, then that will continue to be obscure to us. Right? Why is it that we keep falling into the same cycles, that we keep repeating old ways of being that we already know are not working, are not helpful, or even not what we want. As Shantideva says, I want to be free of suffering, but I keep going back and digging up the causes of my suffering. I keep re reenacting them. Why? And so to stop, as an old master said, Churi, to stop and see, to turn the light around. So that's really what that seat is. It's a big stop sign. <laughs> right? to stop and see, to turn the light around. And so to think about this in terms of um, the day. You know, what does it mean to be a practitioner? To be a, a practitioner of the Dharma. It means really just that. I practice, right? It's, it's a perfect word, you know, in terms of translating, in terms of bringing that word into the Dharma in the West. Because when we want to develop something, we have to do that very thing, right? So if I want to, you know, develop, you know, as a, as a musician, when I want to develop 
you know, my, my, my musicianship as a flutist, I didn't go out and play baseball. I didn't go swimming. I had to play the flute, right? That's how it works, right? We get that. And so if we want to develop and, and bring forth the life, the qualities, the mind, the compassion, all that we must sense, or otherwise why are we here, is not only we are capable of, that, that, that there is, we have the potential for in this life, but importantly, is already in us. Right? It's no good if it's like, yes, there is the potential for that in the world, and there is a path, but not for you, I'm sorry. Right? That doesn't work. So it has to be for you. And so that is what it means to practice. Dharosh used to say, to practice means to do, to engage. To follow a path means to move my feet. If I want to climb a mountain, I have to actually climb the mountain. But what does that mean? In Buddhism, it means everything. So climbing the sacred mountain means in every moment, when waking up, what mind do you find? In getting dressed, where are you now? In making your food, do you know where, do you remember where that came from? In ingesting that food, who is that for? How big is your life today? Who does it include? Who would you like it to include? Who needs you to include them in your day? That's what practice is. And so to join with meditation is both in the unexpected, because as Judy says, that's when we can very easily forget, but it's also in all of the ordinary, knew-it-was-coming kind of moments. right? And that's very important, because those are the kind of moments we often just die a little in, because we knew they were coming. You know, when I was living in the city for those 10 years at the temple, I'd be walking down the street, and, you know, people on phones and just all kinds of stuff, and I thought, I I started thinking about oh, there are these in-between moments. Like, this was important, that's important, I'm traveling from this to that, this is not important. This is an in-between moment, so I'm just going to throw this one away. Right? Until I get to the next thing that I will, that is worthy of my attention, whatever I've got to muster. But when I get there, if I haven't been here, what makes me think I'm going to be able to be here, there? Right? I'm not practicing that. So why would I be surprised or discouraged when I find that very difficult? Right? When I'm constantly, in a sense, treating my mind or my awareness like a light switch. Why would I be surprised when the world has moments of brightness and then lots of moments that are dull and kind of deadening? Right? And so to join with meditation is just a big, fat invitation to live. What's not to like? (laughs) But, you know, it requires some effort. So it's easy to talk about it. I'm talking about it, right? 
It's easy to be inspired, relatively easy to be inspired. My teacher inspired me all the time. And I would carry that inspiration, and I would go out into my day, and I would watch it just come apart. Right? And I would be inspired again, and I would go out into my day, and I'd watch it come apart. And I would think, why can't I just hold on to this? Why can't I just make this like something that, you know, manageable? Why can't I control this? I didn't understand. So, so, so many things I did not understand. (laughs) Many things I still don't understand. But what I didn't understand was the depth of my habits, the real restlessness of my mind, how little I really still understood about practice, that I needed to be patient, that I was actually in the path, I was doing it, I was just looking for something else. I wanted something else, and I wanted it now. And when I saw, didn't see what I liked, I read that as failure. I read that as discouragement. I read that as something's wrong. That's what I didn't understand. I didn't know how to read the signs. I didn't know how to know myself. But that's okay, you know. That's kind of how we work it out. Master Dogen said, when a fish swims in the ocean... There's no limit to the water, no matter how far it swims. When a bird flies in the sky, there's no limit to the air, no matter how far it flies. However, no fish or bird has ever left its element since the beginning. When the need is large, use it largely. When the need is small, use it in a small way. In this way, no creature ever comes short of its own completeness. Wherever it stands, it does not fail to cover the ground. These are words to take with you. No creature, he's talking about you, ever comes short of their own completeness. Wherever you stand, you do not fail to cover the ground. Za. That balance, that ground, that earth, you and the person, the situation, the action. If one practices and realizes the Buddha way, Dogen says, then when you gain one dharma, complete that dharma. Enter into it. Take it up. When you encounter one action, practice that action. That's a very important principle. Don't put it off. When something arises, it's calling to you. Now is the moment to attend to this. Since the place is here, the ancients were never absent Since the place is here and the way leads everywhere, the reason the limits of the knowable are unknowable is simply that our knowledge arises with and practices with the absolute perfection of the Buddha Dharma. The limits of the knowable are unknowable simply because our knowledge comes and goes, rises and falls, is limited by our ability to see here in this moment. That's all. It's a momentary thing. It's an evolving thing for practitioners. It's a changing thing. And so Dogen says, so never think you are not a person capable of awakening, of liberating yourself. And so I hope that those of you who are here for the weekend are taking nothing back with you. except maybe 
some you and the rest of that. What is helpful? What do you need to have your eyes open in this world? Because that's what we can do for ourselves and what we do can do for each other. So please, whatever was in motion to bring you here, keep that moving in a direction worthy of your heartfelt efforts. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.